If you have a Bible this morning, you can turn to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verse 14. If you have a Bible app this morning, you could punch your way there. But we are in the fifth week of a teaching series that we've titled Called. And we're reflecting really on a simple yet deeply profound and somewhat nuanced question. And the question is this, what does it mean for us to be the church? What does it mean for us to be the church? Not just do church, but be the church. And I haven't made much mention to the subtitle of the series, Inventura as it is in heaven, which is a twist, if you may be aware of the line that we, we get out of this prayer formerly known as the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus instructs his disciples, says, thy kingdom come, this is how you ought to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the subtitle is placed there as a reminder to us that simply understanding what it means to be the church isn't our ultimate aim. The purpose of identifying what the church is all about is to help focus our effort and vision and energy to be the church in Ventura, California in 2019. We don't want to just understand. We want to be the church. We're looking perhaps this morning an illustration for the blueprint upon which we can build our individual and communal lives in our following Jesus here in Ventura. The church's job and your job and our job is to understand the call of Jesus and to try in, in all of our sort of effort as grace by the Holy Spirit to, to identify the ways that this might express itself anew within our community and within our context. And this morning we'll be thinking and reflecting about how the mission of Jesus calls and moves disciples into compassionate mission in the world. And so let us turn to Luke 4. We're going to read verses 14 to 30 together this morning. I'm reading out of the NIV. Luke writes this, Then Jesus returned to Galilee. This is like his county where he grew up. Filled with the Holy Spirit's power, reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scriptures you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Certainly there were 
many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, it's a good sermon, by the way. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. They emailed him. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push Jesus over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Jesus, you preach good and apparently convicting sermons. (laughs) Would you do so this day? Would you do so this day in this place? It's in your name we pray, amen. In recent days and weeks, I've thought a lot about preaching. What makes a good sermon? If I surveyed the room here, there's probably any number of you that think this is a good sermon, this is a good sermon. How do you make a good first impression in a new place through a sermon? Don't preach bad sermons. But what makes a bad sermon? I don't, right? How much am I supposed to reveal about myself personally to this new church in this thing that we call preaching? What kind of preaching does a congregation expect? What are you used to? How am I being compared to Pastor Dan? Because I know that that's happening every Sunday. How do I find my own voice from the pulpit? I've been thinking about preaching a lot. And I'm reminded of some advice I once read about preaching. The secret of a good sermon, someone once wrote, is to have a good beginning and a good ending and have the two as close together as possible. (laughs) And the church gave a collective amen. Brief is best. Brief is best. So I've told myself, whatever you do, try and keep it brief. Or at least just not, do not be terribly long. Uh, And Paige lets me know if that happened in the car ride home most Sundays. But I want to pull the curtain back maybe just a little bit more for you. Beyond keeping the preaching not long, I really attempted to do two things in this initial series of preaching at this church. First, I want to provide you a sense of what I think this thing that we call church is all about. As a new pastor, I want to make clear to you from the very beginning how I understand the scriptures to direct and cast vision about what it means for us to be disciples and followers of Jesus. I don't want to stand up here and say, this is the vision of our church. This is the vision of Jesus's church that we get in the scriptures and what we do as a church is figure out what does it mean for us to be those things in our day, in this time, in this particular community. We have to be disciples. We have to be community. We have to use our gifts and not be consumers of religious goods. I want us to get a sense of where we're going, where Jesus has called us and where he has always led the church throughout the centuries. But there's also this second goal, and it's a little self-serving admittedly, and it's certainly not deep or theological per se, but I just want you all to like me. So, like, I just, like in this first teaching series, like, it's just, I'm just being honest, I just want you to like me, or at the very least, I want you to not hate me, right? I, it's a low bar, maybe, but it seems to me just practical 
maybe more than it's biblical, it just seems like communal life together is, is it's better to do ministry in a place when you kind of get along with one another. You don't endure or bear with one another or tolerate each other. I just don't want you to hate me. And, and maybe the bar, <laughs> I was thinking about this week, the bar is lower than that. I just don't want you to fire me. Like that's my, like, <laughs> if you hate me, just don't fire me. This is the, my hope in accomplishing this thing. And but in this morning's passage, we get a glimpse into Jesus's first sermon series, Jesus's first teaching series that he offers within the gospel of Luke. And according to Luke's gospel, this is the inaugural event of the ministry and mission of Jesus in the world. We see in verse 14 that Jesus had taught in in other towns. His popularity was growing in Galilee. But for Luke's gospel and Luke's purposes, this sermon is the first that we get from Jesus. They're the first words that Jesus utters in his ministry to the world. In a lot of ways, this sermon and this teaching sets the tone, sets the stage for his ministry and mission in the world. He's going to, in this sermon, declare and inform his listeners what this thing that he's about to launch is all about. Why this movement he's inviting people to join is absolutely revolutionary in the world. And so we find Jesus in our text this morning in Galilee, his home county, and in Nazareth, his hometown. What better place to launch this new thing that you're doing than in your hometown? And we're told that it's a Sabbath day which would have likely made it a Saturday. And as was Jesus' custom, Jesus heads to the synagogue. Now, a little context here for you. The, The synagogue served as a gathering place for the community or for the people of God to assemble, to pray, and to worship, not unlike what we do in our sanctuary every Sunday morning. But the synagogue was so much more than that during Jesus' time. It was the central way of life for Jewish communities in that time. It didn't function merely for all of the religious activity of his day, like Sabbath or special holidays. It was the community building for various activities, a place where kids would go and be taught, a place where kids would go and learn how to, how to play instruments and how to play music. It's a place where local finances were kept for the community. It was a place where local legal judgments were made. It was like a courthouse of sorts. There's all sorts of things that happen in the synagogue. And so Jesus goes to this familiar place with familiar people, a place where everyone knows your name. I don't know if they drank there or not, but it was a place where everyone knows your name, the synagogue was. And Jesus chooses a worship service in his local synagogue, his home church, to be the launching pad of his mission and ministry in the world. He's among that community that watched him grow up as a child. They taught him in kids' ministry and in the youth group, and they took him to camps. These are the people that Jesus goes to launch his ministry with. We don't know exactly how Sabbath worship services were structured in Jesus' day, but we do know that there were elements of the service that were often part of that gathering. It would begin with red prayers, often including the Shema, the synagogue, oh, excuse me, sorry. The synagogue also held the sort of one of the town's most valuable and prized possessions, the scrolls of scripture that were written. And after the prayers, they would often have a rabbi or they'd have a qualified male get up 
unroll the scrolls, read the scriptures, and then sit back down. And then afterwards, they would have a rabbi or some sort of qualified male, sorry ladies, there's no preaching back then for women, a thing that, that, uh, that Luke addresses in his gospel. One of the things, okay, side note, extra credit for you. I, I don't ever know quite how to share all the exegetical things that I like discover as I study the scriptures, but this is an important one. One of the things that you find at the end of the passage when, when Jesus is talking about these miracles that were performed by prophets in the past, there's a miracle performed to a woman, a widow, and there's a miracle performed to a man, Naaman the Syrian. And all throughout Luke's gospel, so there's these couplings, they call them, of men and women who, who receive the miracles or the blessing of God. And you see it not only in the gospel of Luke, you see it in the gospel of Acts. And the thing that, that a lot of scholars guess is that, that what Luke is doing is he's highlighting this thing that, that Jesus says this is for men and this is for women, this new thing that Jesus has come into the world. All right, to, back to the sermon, sorry. But after they would read the scriptures in the synagogue service, they would often have a rabbi or some sort of qualified male give the week's sermon. I think we should still do this. What do you think, Patty? We just read a scripture and then we just call on any man in the room and just be like, you are delivering the sermon this week. Ah, oh, they would not come to church anymore. So we don't. But in our text this morning, we see Jesus, he, he's given the reading from the prophet of Isaiah during the service. And he is the one who's going to give the morning's message. And so he stands, unrolls the scroll, reads the passage. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And he rolls the scroll back up and he sits down, a common position from which rabbis would teach from. Everyone gazing upon Jesus, awaiting the morning sermon. Many in the assembly likely said things to Jesus that morning. I remember when you were just a boy and now you're here preaching. This is wonderful. And like any good preacher, he keeps his message short. Brief is best. Luke, in fact, records that the teaching that day was a single sentence. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. His teaching was likely longer than this, but Luke just gives us the Cliff Notes version. And it's Luke's shorthand way of saying that the passage from Isaiah serves, I got you notes this week. This is the first fill-in. The passage from Isaiah serves as the summary of Jesus' mission. This passage serves as a summary statement of Jesus' mission in the world. In this single scene, Jesus accomplishes everything a new leader could hope for. He is short, he has cast vision for what he is doing, and everyone, at least initially, really likes him. But we're left wondering, 2,000 years after the fact, why does Jesus use this setting to launch his ministry? Why does Jesus use this specific passage to launch his mission in the world? And why does everybody get so angry at this one that they were so familiar with? What is this event all about for Jesus? And the key to understanding this event and Jesus' sermon comes in verse 19. And it hinges on our understanding of the phrase, the time of the Lord's favor has come. Or if you have another translation, the year of the Lord's favor has come. 
Jesus reads this phrase from the book of Isaiah. But Isaiah, this is not original words or language to Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah is referencing an even older Old Testament book, the book of Leviticus, specifically Leviticus chapter 25. If we understand this thing that Jesus is doing here, we have to understand the context of Leviticus chapter 25, a book I'm sure you all read this week. But in Leviticus 25, we discover one of the most, this is one of the most remarkable instructions given to the people of God throughout all of the scriptures. I was astonished when I stumbled upon this text as an as a undergraduate student in college that had never been taught this passage. In Leviticus 25, we learn of this practice known as the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee, according to Leviticus, occurred once every 50 years. Sabbath happened once every seven days. A Sabbath year happened one year after seven years. And the year of Jubilee was seven Sabbath years, right? So seven times seven times four. Once every 50 years, the year of Jubilee happened. And in that year, there were four things that were supposed to happen among God's people. The first, all slaves we're supposed to be freed. Different kind of slavery than what we often think of, more indentured servitude. People who didn't have finances to pay off a debt, they would go into this indentured servitude or slavery. They were supposed to be freed every 50 years. Second thing that was supposed to happen in the year of Jubilee, all debts, financial and other, were supposed to be canceled and cleared off the books and all the college grads carrying $1.5 trillion of student debt suddenly love the book of Leviticus, right? (laughs) Slaves free, debts canceled. Third thing that would happen the year of Jubilee, the land wasn't farmed. It was given rest. And the fourth thing, the land was given as payment for, lands were given back to original owners who used them to pay off a debt, if that makes sense. People would go into debt and they would say, hey, take my land as this debt that I owe. Those would all be returned to their original owners as a recognition that all of it belongs to God anyway. So we have here slaves freed, debts forgiven, rest from work, and recognition that the world belongs to God. Man, I wonder where we get our language from in the church. And this is given to Israel not only to make them mindful of the poor, in their midst. But God gives them this instruction as a sort of practice, a communal practice in which they would care for the poor, to engage in efforts to relieve the poor of their suffering and the things that oppress them in the world, to put an expiration date to all of the suffering of the poor, at least once every 50 years. And what began to happen, this is fascinating, in Jewish thought and Jewish theology throughout the centuries was that the year of Jubilee began to represent God's ideal way for the world to be ordered all of the time. These practices of freeing slaves, forgiving debts, finding rest, and recognizing that the totality of the world belongs to God, they became the cornerstone characteristics of the world the people of God anticipated and longed for. This is what they wanted. This was their vision of where it was that God was taking them in the world. And what Isaiah reveals to us is that this world 
that God will bring about for his people. It will come, but it will be brought by a person. It will be brought by a servant leader. It will be brought by a Messiah. There will be a Messiah who brings about God's vision and dreams for his people, and you will know the Messiah has come because the Messiah will proclaim good news to the poor. The Messiah will proclaim release for the captives. The Messiah will heal the blind. The Messiah will free and give liberty to oppressed people. This is how you know the year of the Lord's favor has come. This is how you know that this world that God has longed for and dreamt of is beginning to break into our world. And Jesus' pronouncement here in Luke 4 is the revelation that he is the long-awaited Messiah who has come to redeem the world. That is, God's redemptive work is accomplished through the person of Jesus, God's Messiah. Side note, this is what, this is what all the miracle stories are about in the Gospels. So, so often what we think the miracle stories are about in the Gospels, it's about adding to Jesus' credibility that he has supernatural powers as a revelation that he is God and we need to take him seriously. That's not what they're about. What they're about is the, is the revelation that God's Messiah has come into the world and redeem it from its brokenness. And this is evidence in the life of Jesus because he spends time with the poor and preaches the good news to them. Because he frees people who have demon possession, who've been captive to this problem for so many years. I'm the Messiah. This is why I'm able to do these things. This is why Jesus heals blind people. It's not a random miracle. I think I'm just going to heal the blind people today. No, it's a revelation that I am the Messiah. And oppressed people are being set free. This thing that you've been waiting for, it's happening in me. This is what the miracles are about. Not just look at the cool things that I can do. The year of the Lord's favor has come and it has come in our midst and it is happening now. And the audience <laughs> hears this message, amazed at his proclamation. They doubt that Jesus the little boy they watched grow up could be the Messiah. You're just, you're just Jesus. I changed your diaper. How could you be the Messiah, right? And as Jesus goes on, he reveals to them the ones for whom God's redemptive work is for. It turns out their skepticism, or it turns their skepticism into full-on hatred of him. He informs them that he, the Messiah, has come not just for the, quote, people of God, the Israelites, but he's come as a Messiah of the whole world. This wasn't just for them and their saving. It's for everyone. What God's people have long failed to realize was that God's redemptive purposes were not just for them. God's redemptive purposes were supposed to start with them, but never stop with them. They failed to understand that God's redemptive purposes extend to and beyond them, beyond God's people, to the widow of Zarephath, to the Syrian named Naaman, to the Gentiles, as they talk about in the New Testament. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus' mission sends him to the margins of society, bringing about God's redemptive purposes 
for the poor, as he says in the text. And this, there's all my exegetical work I've done all week, if you're wondering what I was doing. And this has massive, massive implications for us. And the first is this, and this isn't in the notes. But here's the first implication it has for us. It means that no matter where you're at or where you've been, there is no place far enough from the one true living God. There's no place far enough from Jesus that he will not go to redeem and save you. The good news is that the good news isn't just for the, quote, people of God. It's not just for the holy people or the religious people or those who grew up in the church or have their lives all together. But what we see in Jesus from the very first event of his ministry as he goes to seek and save those who are on the margins of society, God moves beyond the holy. He moves beyond the temple. He moves beyond the church, beyond the sanctuary, beyond those with the families of long religious affiliation. He goes to the margins He goes to the captives. He goes to the blind. He goes to the poor. He goes to the places where people are that the world has said they are insignificant and lack of value. He goes to them and he says, I've I've got a word for you, a word of hope. God is for you and God is working to bring about your redemption. Amen. But this text too It has implications for those who have experienced the saving work of Jesus in their own lives. We are called to minister to the poor. We are called as a church to minister to the poor. For clarification, the poor are the spiritually poor. The poor are the economically poor. The poor are all those considered in our world insignificant or insignificant to the world. We, as a church, are called to ministry to the poor. We're sent on compassionate mission in the world, a mission to the poor. The gospel isn't just the news. Catch this. This is important in Luke's gospel. The gospel isn't just the news that God has forgiven me of my sin. If that's a summary of the gospel for you, you have the wrong gospel. You don't have Jesus' gospel. You don't have the gospel of the scriptures. It's too small. The gospel is God has forgiven me of my sins so that the Holy Spirit can reside in me so I can continue to share in God's mission in the world. That's the gospel. Much bigger, much, much bigger, much more exciting. And so we go proclaiming the good news to the poor as the church, but also engaging in the work that heals and frees and liberates people from their brokenness spiritual or physical. We do all of these things as the church. In Jesus's mission, he alleviates the sufferings of people per miracles, right? It's because he's the divine divine son of God. We, unfortunately, are not the divine children of God in the same sense that Jesus is. We're supposed to participate in the same work. We take all that we have, our gifts, talents, energies, efforts, and we go to the poor and we utilize all of those things, all of our resources to alleviate suffering and to bring about the redemption of people one by one by one if we have to. We're called to compassionate mission as the church. We're called to feed the hungry. We're called to counsel the addicted, 
to educate the poor, to provide healthcare for the sick. We empty ourselves completely for this end, for this mission, because the time of the Lord's favor has come in Jesus. And our job, powerhouse churches, people who have discovered the redemptive work of God in our own lives is to get out of the church and seek and find those in Ventura, California in 2019 who are in desperate need of some good news. Proclaiming it to them and introducing them to the one who can redeem them, Jesus. And this is the dangerous thing that I guess preachers who decide to take this text here in their first month at a new church, they say, it's not just about you, church. We are called to compassionate mission outside of this place. Don't try and throw me off a cliff afterwards, though. But. <laughs> and here's the thing. I want you to catch this. Our compassionate work in the world isn't done to give us credibility in our community so that we can grow our church. That ain't it. If you think the whole point of doing that work out in the community is so that we can have more people in here, you've missed the points. This is the mission. Bringing about God's redemptive purposes in Ventura and in the world, that is the mission. This is what it's all about. As people who bear the name of Jesus, we join him in mission in the world. And here's a sobering reality, the last fill in the blank. I don't know if I did the blanks good. But we cannot identify with Jesus' mission. Read, we cannot be the church if we don't minister to the poor. Don't fire me. We cannot identify with Jesus' mission if we don't minister to the poor. We, we can't do it. It's what we signed up for. One of the things, I know I'm going long, but I don't have a watch for that reason. Last thing is this. I was reading this article this week. I had a lot of conversations with y'all about alcohol. It's really funny. But um, I guess I shouldn't have preached my first sermon on water to wine. But um, when you come to the membership class in the Church of the Nazarene, there's this thing that we call the code of Christian conduct. And in there, that's where everyone, like, as they want to become a member of the church, there's this thing that says, oh, we're not supposed to drink alcohol. And we have this long-winded conversation about, can you do that? Can you not do that? Can you do that? Can you not do that? Can I be a member? Do you still want my money? And, right, all this whole thing. Do you know what else is in the code of Christian conduct for members? As a member of this church, if you're a member of this church, you signed up to engage with practices that bring about justice for the poor. No debate over that one, but how many of us are engaging with that activity? That's a requirement for membership. This is central to what we do. Who are the poor in our midst? The addicted, orphans, immigrants, the abused, single moms, refugees, disabled communities, our homeless neighbors, those with mental illness. Who are they in Ventura? in 2019, that we're gonna go to the margins and serve and bring about God's redemptive purposes. Those are the ones to whom Jesus was sent and they're the ones to whom we are called to serve. Amen? Amen. In a few moments, we're gonna take communion. There is perhaps no greater demonstration of the extent to which Jesus gave of himself to redeem 
the world. And our prayer as a church is that we, taking these elements, would become that which we eat, that we would become the presence of Christ in the world, sent on mission in Ventura. As the elements are passed, you need not be a member of the church to receive these elements. We only ask that you are a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus this morning. I invite you to receive the elements and hold, hold on to them so we could take them collectively as one body this morning. Let us pray. Holy God, we gather at this, your table, in the name of your son, Jesus, who by your spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captive, set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, fed hungry, ate with sinners, and established the new covenant of forgiveness of sins. And we live in the hope of his coming again. We gather as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to you in praise and thanksgiving. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts. Make, make them by the power of your spirit to be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one in Christ, one with each other and one in the ministry of Christ to all the world until Christ comes in final victory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Ushers, if you could come forward. she was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. Take yours. 
he gave thanks and he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which he's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, the body of Christ. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ. Father, our prayer and our desire this morning is that we would be presence of your son Jesus in the world by your grace form us into this that we might give of ourselves and our lives tirelessly for your mission and ministry in the world it's in his name that we pray amen even though our service has concluded our service really just begins this week may the Holy Spirit empower you to be the presence of Jesus to those that you interact with this week. May they be graced by his presence because of you. Go in his peace. Amen.